Audi. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Giles Corrin is probably the UK's best-known food critic writing columns for the Times newspaper and many other outlets as well as presenting wonderful programs about food and travel including amazing hotels where he gets to visit and actually work in amazing hotels all over the world. He is in his own words an icon of foodie ponziness so don't ask me how we get onto McDonald's, Nando's and frozen fish blocks in Billericay. Despite saying he's not much of a traveller, Giles has been to over a hundred countries and with his trademark wit has something to say about a lot of these places. It was great fun popping round for a cup of tea at Giles's place in North London and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I know you travel a lot for work as I've read and seen and heard many of the things you do but I want to start a little bit earlier than that because I read this beautiful travel article you wrote that was from 1974. You didn't write it in 1974 obviously because that would be very advanced. Um, I was quite advanced but yeah. Well I I have no doubt, I have (laughs) no doubt. But um, it was about you reliving the holidays that you used to have with your parents and that was from, they were on holiday with you in 1974. Your parents sounded like they'd be a blast and my sort of holiday people to go on holiday with. But tell me, tell me about that whole holiday experience and maybe start with the childhood holidays. Uh, yeah, our childhood holidays were all quite classic 70s holidays for a sort of aspirational urban middle class people like my parents who, who um, you know, with that, that dawn of, of Mediterranean travel. So we would basically go to uh, Ibiza before it became Ibiza. And there was no clubbing or anything. That was just Ibiza, Ibiza, Corfu, places that now sound really posh. Sometimes the south of France, sometimes the Algarve. Big, tall hotel, uh, swimming pool. For my parents, really, going on holiday was just about smoking fags and drinking cocktails by a swimming pool, uh, reading the new Geoffrey Archer, Maeve Binchy, uh, the Balkan trilogy, I remember being. Olivia Manning was that. I remember that being a, a feature of one holiday. It was just reading and reading, reading. Fags, 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 booze, booze, booze. Very little sun cream, everyone burning. And then lunch, steak, well done, Lorenzo, or Pablo, or Pierre, or wherever we were. Interchangeable, I think. Interchangeable, pretty much. And, you know, and, it, was, and it was really lovely. And my, my, my parents were actually, they were very sophisticated. I mean, we spoke, my mother's still alive, and still is very sophisticated, but, you know, spoke French, interacted, that kind of thing. But we were not the types to go... Uh, across France in a caravan staying at Little Gites. My parents would look up in the Michelin Guide, where's the best food? I mean, they li- and they also, they liked, you know, the, sort of the foie gras and all that kind of thing, all the kind of posh food. But it was mostly, it was just sort of two weeks in the sun, big house or uh, big hotel or villa, um, fags, booze, pool, ice cream for the kids, 
always packed a couple of boxes of uh, Frosties and then drank it with that weird sterilised milk that the Europeans used to drink. Terrible. That's formed most of my xenophobia right there. Uh, and they were lovely holidays. And then I got older and I wanted to sort of travel. And my, I thought I should go travel. But in the end, I've come back to... I even went through years of ragging my parents. about, oh, let's go to these hotels and just sit there smoking fags and drinking and reading books. Rubbish. Why don't, we, why don't we go to, you know, my posh friends at my posh school that they'd all got to Thailand sailing and stuff. Let's, and, and I tried that and didn't like it. And so now, really, I take my kids on holiday and sit by the pool and... Smoke fags and read books. In the 70s, it sounds like I'm sort of visualising sort of Abigail's party of holidays, sort of tottering around. Isn't the that a sex pool, thing, though? Isn't <laughs> I, I don't know. Don't they, isn't that the Mike Leaf? But then they all swap afterwards. I don't think my parents did that. <laughs> I can't remember that bit. I I just although I remember topless. Topic. I remember South of France. I remember the topless beaches. Saint Maxime was a topless beach in the late 70s. And I just remember my, my dad I wasn't allowed to go there. And then we went. And I remember, still remember the first pair of boobs I had. <laughs> I think the first pair of boobs. Sorry, anyway. The first pair of boobs I ever saw was the first pair of plastic boobs I ever saw at the same time. Really? On yeah. the beach in France? It's probably the first ever plastic boob enhancement. They can't well. have been very good, can well, they? They weren't great. Although to a 10-year-old Englishman... The, the, That's, they, you had not much to compare it to. No, time, and it was pretty, pretty, pretty excellent. This conversation has taken a turn that I didn't expect yeah, no, sorry. to uh, take. Uh, but it, it sounds like since very much you've sort of... You've become the sort of holidayer that you maybe... You, your friends at school were and you, your family weren't and neither were most British families at that time it was about sort of camping even down the south of France and that sort of yeah thing. no I just the, the, the idea of travel was not really thing. my parents had my mother was a doctor my father was a journalist and they had office jobs and then you got two weeks following in the summer and you went away and you got some sun that was just what you did and that's what people did for ages and ages and it was like one I mean meanwhile everyone was you know the, I've made endless tv shows about it since but you know the 50s and 60s everyone's going to Benidorm and Torremolinos or a teeny weeny bit posher Ibiza and, and, and Corfu it, it wasn't there wasn't a sort of what was your question I can't remember <laughs> Torremolinos back in those days and those sort of resorts were actually really glamorous Princess oh. Margaret used to go there and the royals and yeah no well we did we we did used to go to the south of Spain as well. I, I so remember also we used to go to the Algarve and I remember going to the Algarve in like 1975 or 6 when it was really still pretty nice. I'm not saying it's not now, but it isn't. And my dad saying, God, it, you should have seen it when we came here on our honeymoon in 1963. Then it was unspoiled. And I've seen Super 8 footage of their honeymoon from 1963 and the Algarve really was not, they were like in the only hotel there. It was an unspoiled paradise, such as does not really exist now. You can fly all the way to Mozambique and it's still just massive high-rise hotels. But the idea that already in 1974 or 5 one should have been lamenting the destruction, although obviously we were part of it. Yeah, I mean, then when I was older, I did do travelling, but I just never really were. I mean, when I was when I was 18, I was 17, I just left school. I went interrailing uh, with my friend Alex Goulden and I had that the magical 130 quid pass to get you anywhere in Europe, anywhere, pre, I mean, still communist, so you could get as far as the, the edge of Yugoslavia and you had to come back. Worked for a month. We we went to Nice, ate at McDonald's, got back on the train, went to Amsterdam, ate at McDonald's, bought a 16th of hash, smoked the joint, got on the train, came back, and I was back home in less than a week. Um, because my money had run out and it was boring and I didn't really like, you know, I didn't, just didn't like it. McDonald's it, has its uses when you're, uh, when you're away, though. I find when you're 18 and to, don't speak the yeah. language. And also, if you're, like, I've been to, like, you know, very foreign places that, you know, after a while the food gets a bit too much, especially for breakfast, lunch and dinner, and you, like, welcome. I don't even eat meat and I don't even go to McDonald's here, but you <clears> welcome <throat> something that's, like, familiar like that, that's going to be stodgy. But, uh, no, even now, and I'm supposed to be a sort of in my own mind, perhaps, but I'm supposed to be like an icon of foodie ponciness, you know, food TV, restaurant critic of the times and all that. I got 
papped in the current sense of social media papped, so like, paps don't care about me, but social media people are everywhere, at the Trevisi Fountain in Rome, there is a McDonald's. And I was with my wife and I nipped in for a wee and I came out and someone took a picture of me in a picture. Charles Conrad, he's gone to McDonald's in Rome. And best uh, toilets in the world, though. Best, best toilets, toilets in the world. In the and you know, I also had a cheeky cheeseburger on my <laughs> way out, but I didn't tell anybody that. I think I'm going to bill you that as the iconic, punsy, foodie mm. person. Did I read somewhere that after university you couldn't find a job and ended up working in a shop in France? Uh, yes. Was it true? Yeah, why wouldn't I? After, <laughs> well, no, no, it was just no, after, after, after school, I worked as an elf in Santa's Grotto in Harrods. And I, I'd rather like working in a shop. And then through through my student years, I sort of did bar jobs and bits Yeah, but and when pieces. you say a shop, that's Harrods. It's not like a it's shop. It's a shop. You go in there and buy things from a... From you a, might. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I don't, because I live in Kentish Town, not in Knightsbridge. People, I know, yeah. No, but I worked in a shop, yes, I suppose. Okay, it's a posh shop. It's a posh it doesn't, shop. Are you, Were I, you a posh elf? I was, yeah. I mean, posher than the others. Although I, the, the theme was Tyrolean and my stage name was Rudy. But my name was Giles and I had just left boarding school and I was on my way to Oxford. So it's, it's what you'd expect it in Harrods. It is, yeah. It's what you'd expect in Harrods. I mean, uh, I mean, I don't think I'd have done it in Debenhams myself. I wouldn't be up for that. <laughs> so when I worked in a shop in Paris, you might say it was a posh shop. Um, Ralph Lauren, you know, I think it's a bit naff, frankly. But uh, the polo Ralph Lauren, the, 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 the flagship European boutique at that time in the Place de la Madeleine. Um, yeah, no, I left university and, and couldn't get a job. It was a recession in 91 and my girlfriend was in France. So I just went there and I, I had all these plans. I was going to write a novel. Half did, didn't really work. Trained as a Berlitz teacher, but the money was rubbish and it wasn't much fun. Uh, and then the, the money to, to work in a, in a shop was great. You've since managed to travel really extensively through your work and I don't really know where to start. Should we start with amazing hotels? Because that's got to be one of the cushiest jobs in the world. It is one of the cushiest jobs, but funnily enough, talking about travelling, the best travel, in terms of what travelling is perceived to be by people who think they're travelling, actually, my year in Paris working in a shop I was fully immersed in the culture and I wasn't working in some, I wasn't like a stu- doing some student teaching job or some bogus charity thing in Africa where I'm building, you know, walls which are going to be taken down again and rebuilt by the next bunch of students to come through that know. I was working in the shop hand to mouth, um, you know, had to open a bank account, had to get a flat, had to pay my way, had to work out my taxes, which I decided to not do and I probably still owe French tax. But I really I learned fluent French of the kind which is not the kind about discussing Derrida and, and, and Foucault. It's about selling shirts to rich people. And I came away from that knowing France incredibly well. I spent every night I ate in a different restaurant. I got to know the food culture. When I had a weekend off, I would go on a holiday to the Ile de Préa or up into Brittany somewhere. And I really, 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 I mean, really, really travelled small distances backwards and forwards on the RER to work and out into the suburbs and back. But I actually think subsequent attempts to go away for a month and really get the feeling of Namibia failed by comparison. That was real travelling. The thing about the amazing hotels job is when I was 17 and I'd left school and all my friends were going off on their, on their gap year, before it was called a gap year, but it was just, you know, they were all travelling and they were all going off to Thailand and Nepal and whatever. They were all given money by their parents. My parents didn't do that. So I had to work to earn the money. And by the time I'd started earning the money, it was quite fun just spending it in the pub in London. I never got away. But I always told myself, they said, oh, you've got to go away travelling, man. You've got to go to Thailand because your last chance before you go to university and settle down and get a job. I thought, what a grim, bloody view of life. I'm 17, 18. This is my last chance to travel. Are you mad? When I'm 47, 48, 49, I'm just going to pick up, start, head off to wherever I want to go. Africa, South America, whatever. I'll be off. And for a few years, it looked like I'd called it wrong. It turns out I was right. And that is what I do for a living. And, and oddly, the thing about these, making these amazing hotels things is that, I'm sure you know, going somewhere and working, even if it's just making some poxy TV show, you are more immersed in the culture and in the, than when you're on holiday because you are, like all the people there, working. You're getting up early. 
you're interacting with people on a sort of professional level, because you've got fixers on the ground, you are taken immediately to cool places. You don't have that FOMO that you get when you're not, am I in the best place? Am I, is there something I should be seeing? Because the researchers said, we are here, this is the best volcano in Chile, and this is the best uh, Mapuche native speaker of Maputhungon who is going to take you around. And here is the authentic fire where you'll be preparing the food from the parrot that you've authentically trapped or whatever. Uh, so, so yeah, no, it's great. I mean... Um, what is that, like roasted parrot or something? I don't know why. I, I didn't, I didn't, there were lots of parrots in Chile, but we didn't eat them. They don't but eat I, them, do they? Do they eat I, 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 no. I they eat all sorts of weird stuff. In, you know, in these not allowed to places. call it weird. Oh, yeah, no, Not no. allowed to call them there. Or foreign. Absolutely or not. We're no. all... No, I... This Exotic. Cultural... What is, what is it? Um, cultural exploitation? Cultural appropriation. Oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. So, no, so, for example, in uh, Ecuador, eating guinea pig, but I did it without mocking. I did it as if, it's the weird thing you have to do, I did it as if that was all fine and normal because there's, there's a sort of branch of snowflake, privileged student white boys, frankly, who will go, oh, you're laughing at the Peruvian people for eating guinea pig. And you go, it's because it's funny. And they would laugh at me eating a bacon sandwich. But you, you can't, so... Because you just visualise a guinea pig in a sandwich, don't you? That When you think of people eating guinea pig, of course, this is not what it's like. You're kind of like thinking about putting your hamster... It's basically between, you know, what it was like. No, that's what it was like. <laughs> so my the guinea pig that I ate was cooked by Monica, Monica Galetti, master chef, charge and great chef, a friend of mine. And she was in the kitchen and she served... My, normally, they sort of serve this, a saddle with the legs and the bits of the meat. It would just look like meat. She did it a whole roast guinea pig and served it to me on a plate looking at me. Tiny little bones. And... Tiny little bones, obviously. Uh, tiny little bones and uh, and also I just got off the plane uh, I'd got off the plane landed in Quito and then you know it's a, I changed I can't remember where but you're in the air for 24 hours and then a six hour drive through the jungle and you arrive and you just want a cold beer and a cheese sandwich and there's Monica going oh Giles plonk guinea pig <laughs> I'm trying to think of a good guinea pig name that I could call it, but I've never had many guinea pigs. Never kept them. I've got I've got two fluffy, hamsters at the moment. Fluffy, yeah. Fluffy but well, the kids, my kids had one. There were one of them was that died. Was called Misty. For a long time, my children were very very sad about the death of Misty. It was around about the time that they ate a guinea pig, and I didn't let them see the show in case they thought it was the same one. There is something to be said about uh, what you sort of implied there about when you actually live somewhere and immerse yourself somewhere. And probably in those days when you're actually, you don't have much money and you're finding out where the best volcano is rather than just being, you know, sort of mm. led to it. There is something different about that sort of travel. But the travel you do for, you know, for work has to be that sort of, right, these are the best things because you're going to film it. Mm. So where, what was the best experience from the whole amazing hotels? Well, do you know, Seriously. as an experience, it is really just a work experience, oddly. And it's just, a, it's best when the, you happen to, because the crew's different all the time. The crews that you get on best with, the, the, the shoots that go best are good. The, you know, anywhere, and if, if you can get there and back easily. I mean, I've got a small family, so I enjoyed the one in Ireland. Because I'd only, I, I could, it was only five days, because you fly, work, come back. The ones which are three, Polynesia was an amazing experience. I swam with whales and I dived with sharks and turtles. Well, the sharks and turtles were already there and I dived in amongst them. They weren't diving They didn't too. come with us at the thing. But it was three days together and three days to get back with a 12-hour time difference. So it was as if my family was dead. So I was just quite miserable a lot of the time. Whereas when, the, when we shot in Ireland or Switzerland, somewhere nearby, it was, it was fun. So whether you're really enjoying the place, you have a bit of downtime. Sounds a bit spoiled, but you don't. I, I, you know, it's the ones with the nice quiet rooms and the room service where you just you know sleep and turn off the one i the one i've been back to on my own money which is what people often ask me about restaurants where would you go and pay your own money was uh, kenya which was already a place that i loved and a place where i had friends but the, the that was the first one we shot in well, we've shot 13 shows and the first one we shot was in kenya and it was at this rather absurd place giraffe manor in nairobi 
which is a giraffe conservation project with a hotel in it. And it's a bit ridiculous, but, but sort of wonderful. And then up into Samburu, which is where they, and they had some sort of game lodges hunting, you neither shoot them nor hunt them, but that's what they're called, you know, lodges out there. And I then ended up going back there with my kids. I sort of made friends with them, wanted to go back. My wife and I both sort of, she spent her gap year in, in Namibia. I have a very good Kenyan friend who was my one of the best friends at university. She obviously lives in Kenya and is Kenyan. And I've been out to visit her sporadically and seen a lot of Kenya properly because she's local and African. And it's a probably, you know, you're, you're really there. You're not just visiting. And then we had this amazing trip in the spring. We took the kids and we'd been wanting to go back to Africa. But it was, we take the kids, you know, they, they are, we're at the time six and four. They're a bit little. They are, as I'm sure you know, if you're on, safari if you're out there on which is not necessarily some tourist safari but you're out there camping in the in, in the wilds a big cat doesn't really care about people a little child looks like lunch so they're they're slightly more a threat and then there's all sorts of illnesses and vaccinations and hassles and lacks of comfort and these kinds of things little scary planes and stuff and we thought well, should we wait until the kids are older because they're not going to appreciate it now because frankly they're still wowed by a cow uh, and in the end, it was the best holiday any of us had ever had. We just went out, we went back to this giraffe manor. I'd been filming, oh, look, it's a giraffe. I didn't care. My kids were blown away by these giraffes. My kids in Africa, it was amazing. We took the elephants and leopards and lions. They were more excited in the giant moths and huge caterpillars and stuff like that, which was great because English people, European people, white people, go to Africa, oh, no, elephant. Mm-hmm. If you're related to the Trump family, you, you kill them. But if you're not, then you just take photos of them. But it's all of it, uh, uh, uh. and the Africans, the locals, you're mad. You know, like spotting, isn't yeah. it? You're ticking off a giraffe. Why do you care about these elephants? And uh, the, I, so when I was filming, I met this guy Jacob, who was a Samburu warrior, uh, and he had, like as they all do, quite a lot of goats and, and, and uh, a couple of camels, even and stuff. And he, I said, "What's the craziest thing to you about the tourism?" And he said, "It's that people come to to look at these, these lions and jackals and hyenas and, and 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 leopards. To me, these are just vermin. Why why do you want to go and look at them? You could look at my beautiful goats." Why do you want to look at this good-for-nothing leopard? So, so it was great that my kids were more interested in the little things, you know, the snakes and the insects and the birds. It's um, often when you take them places like that and they're just looking at the squirrels, you're like, oh, for God's sake, we could have stayed at home. We could have stayed at home. <laughs> I've got footage on my phone, which I, which I put up on uh, Instagram, of my daughter at dawn in a, in, a, in a topless sort of GP thing with a bull elephant, you know, as far away as that TV, you know, a, a two, two feet away. Uh, giving all that and, my, and my, my daughter huddled up against the dawn reading Diary of a Wimpy Kid she's just like totally oblivious at least she wasn't on her phone or iPad or anything like that well we didn't take it in the, with us but yes you're quite right it's, it's, it's just one down she's reading stupid Diary of a Wimpy Kid when the elephant's there but, but we, we decided we would take them whether they were ready for it or not what we want to do most is be in Africa see our friends the amazing scenery the smells and the sights and a little bit of wildlife and a little bit of you know plane rides up over the down the Rift Valley and stuff and the kids can come along. Where are the rest the best restaurants in the world though? You mentioned an amazing place you went to in Kenya, but where else do you think are the best restaurants in the world that you've been to? <sighs> the best restaurants in the world? The best restaurants in the world are in London. I mean it's a little bit Dorothy in the land of Oz. I mean I've you know it's it's there's really no place like home. I've I've been to I don't know El Bulli and the El Bouilly and the, it was very, very good and was very great, but it's gone now. Uh, the French Laundry, Noma in Copenhagen, the French Laundry in California in the Napa Valley. But all of them, halfway through, I want to click my heels three times, you know, you know no place like home, and, and, and come back and just Nando's on the corner here. By this. <laughs> I'd rather be in. <laughs> that spicy sauce. Exactly. Like but, you know, the, you know the, obviously, um, Catalonia is one of the places that people go for, the, the San Sebastian for the sort of tapas crawl. 
it appeals to me less and less. At a time in my life when I'm uh, growing old and my children are here and I want to be around, it's quite handy that the world's cuisine has, has come to me. So, no, I mean, when I think of it, I've been to, to New York, everyone talks about the food in New York. Now they're just copying us, really. It's not the other way around. You get to New York, you're so jet lagged, you stay up on the first night to try and beat the, have a few drinks, and then you're just asleep for the whole time and you come home. Australia, when it's a long way to go, I went to Australia, travelled around, and yeah, you would get to eat. I mean, what they call the great lifestyle really just means eating outdoors. Uh, and once you've done that for a week, you've had enough. You've had enough cooked oysters and shellfish and stuff. So yeah, no, it's, it's coming back here. I'm really glad you said that because I really think that the UK, not just London, but the UK, you know, you go to Cornwall, Devon, places in Scotland and Ireland and that we really seem to have embraced the whole sort of foodie culture. And I think around the world, we're still renowned for like fish and chips, but it's mm. really, and not just around the world, but people here, you know, talk about, oh, we're sort of known for our fish and chips and crap food. But um, actually, I think we're doing really well. But first of all, fish and chips has had a renaissance. If, for example, when you're in America, most places, to be honest, they're quite they're quite ignorant about the food, and they think, "Oh, you come from from Britain, the food's all terrible." It's all there was a scandal recently. Some American critic for I think the Washington Post wrote about we eat mutton pies all the time. We never ate mutton pies. Literally read either read a sort of 1842 guidebook or has got everything from early Charles Dickens. But that's what they think about the food we eat, and it's obviously different now it's it's filtering down through society to that awareness of that you know that posh food you know the nice food isn't just posh and that, that it's available to everyone but things like fish and chips you know we, we've that is having a renaissance we are, you know hipsters have had a big burger thing and a hot dog thing and a taco thing it's coming to fish and chips and the important thing now because i've just edited this truth love and clean cutlery this this guide to ethical restaurants in britain and there is also there are, there are, there's a u.s edition which is edited by alice waters who's a huge hero of you know began the whole Thing of ethical eating. I'm not sure how much work she's doing. I think she just put a name to it. Didn't slog away like me. There's an Australian edition. There's a world edition. But the, but in the UK edition, which I put together it, quite hastily, right? Can I think of 350 half decent restaurants which aren't actually actively poisoning us? Put them in a row. Fish and chips came up a lot, and you wouldn't have thought it would. Fish and chips now is being driven by ideas of sustainability, not just cod, not just haddock. You know, previously fish and chip shops had descended. And when you're talking about travel, that's one of the things that people travelling to Britain, which we have to think it's a huge tourist industry, it's a big part of our economy. People come here and they want to eat, and fish and chips is a thing, and it's been rubbish for 70 years. You, a coastal fish and chip shop has meant a you know a place with a with a two-pea fruit machine and locals stabbing each other and <laughs> drinking Red Bull, and then you go and get a battered savoy or a you know Chinese spring roll or a samosa or any number of sort of crap approximations to world food, uh, plus one sort of row of rectangular battered cod pieces that have come in for you sitting there at Billericay looking out at the sea and that's what they serve it's changed around and now people are eating other kinds of fish and uh, sort of wider idea of you know more you know more interesting kinds of potato less of the deep fried stuff more grilled things healthier more sustainable and it, it's one of the one of the best things about british food do you have a region obviously other than london in the uk that you talk about especially in the book or that you think yeah well the book's good for food yeah i mean london london's where the money is so that's where it's least risky to open an interesting and novel restaurant if you want to try something totally new if you're going to open a hawaiian sushi and grill or poke house or whatever poke have you pronounce it you're just you're not going to do that in warrington uh, or stoke because they haven't even got a well, stoke has just got a pizza express but they haven't got one in warrington you know there's not going to be because it can't go wrong there aren't people who are going to come in and spend 20 quid on something they've never heard of that might be disgusting whereas in london there's enough thick people you know stupid people with money more money than sense that you can run a, a business there but for other stuff no the sustainable food i mean devon features hugely devon and cornwall feature hugely in the book where 
it's become part of the whole tourist vibe is, is soft carbon footprint. You know, one, one of the key things in, in the Truth, Love and Clean Country book is not just sustainability, organic energy, water use. It's about involvement of the community. It's about not just opening a plonk, opening a pizza chain, getting in loads of Eastern Europeans on the train and putting them in rubbish conditions and they grumpily serve you until they finally go home because they had such a horrid time. It's getting local Devon and Cornwall people involved in the industry rather than the kids in Devon and Cornwall having to go up to London to get a job in a you know, in a restaurant, they can do it all there. So that's, Scotland has lots of great stuff. Well, I mean, the, the coast is all really, really great. The book is not as, hasn't got as much as it might have in large urban areas other than London. There are some, but Manchester's reasonably strong. But the likes of, you know, Liverpool and Newcastle, they, 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 they didn't have as much as, as they ought to have. You're a lot less grumpy than I thought you would be when it comes to travel, because I've seen, I read some brilliant quotes, quotes from you about travel. Uh, one is, travel does not broaden the mind, it narrows it and shrinks the world. And worst of all, it makes boring people think they're interesting. Mm. I mean, yeah, I wrote that in GQ. Some, I mean, I say some time ago, but I haven't changed my mind really. Uh, I, when I was uh, sort of 15 or 16, my housemaster at my boarding school tried to. So there was a school exchange that used to send kids to America uh, every year for a year, and he and he told me, "Oh, you should go." I was just troublemaker at school, and they wanted to get rid of me for a year. It'll, it'll help you mature. It'll broaden the mind. It'll make you much more interesting, young man. And I, there was particularly there were two or three boys in my house in the year above who'd been on this thing, and they come back the same old boring tossers, and they hadn't even lost their virginity there, which was really what American high schools were for, as far as I could see. So I refused to go thus delaying the loss of my own virginity by at least two years and I've never really recovered from that. I can't, I can't really believe that prejudice idea that I had that travels rubbish, travels for wankers. It's, and, you know, because I did know these, like my school teachers, they'd all come back with these boring stories and toss on about it. Boring friends with my parents, oh, I've just come back from... So I refused to go to America. Can you imagine, you know, not going to Rydale High in Greece? That was offered to me and I said no. So I'm still quite bitter about that. I could have been a very different person. But yeah, no, people telling you where they've been on holiday, it's, it's sort of third only to, well, second possibly, no, third to people telling you their dreams and telling you the plot of a film they've just seen. The third one is tell us about your holiday and, you know, show you the holiday snaps, which has now become the currency of social media, Instagram. So I'm holiday, 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 holiday. Oh, look at me, hark at me, humble brag, hashtag. Ugh. Do you feel the pressure to do all that social media stuff? You're doing pretty good on Twitter and everything. It gives you a platform to rant on. Well, you know, I've really reined back on Twitter because I've already got platforms to rant on. So I did it for a while. And my followers went up to about 200,000. But I've got in so much, so many scrapes. And, it's, and the, the currency of Twitter has become so much nastier. People are partly responsible for it. But that now my, my followers now are gradually dropping off because I don't really go on and engage anymore on Twitter. I went on in the first place because I thought you had to cat them around and said, how come you're not on Twitter? You should get on. So on I went. But the odd thing is, yes, people do go on there to rant. I have three columns a week in The Times, a monthly column in Esquire, a monthly column in Soho House magazine, all sorts of other places that I write. I have TV shows. I don't really need to go onto Twitter and just, you know, shout about how about Donald Trump's wig or whatever people seem to do. Instagram is quite jolly. So, re I mean, I think really they're marketing tools, um, but they don't really work for me. And whenever I, uh, whenever I write a book, I go on Twitter and Instagram and say, buy my book. And nobody ever does. When, 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 when I, I had a book 
a collection, a book called uh, Anger Management for Beginners, which was the first book I published in the age of Twitter. It was about 2011. And I went on Twitter and said, tweeted my book. And I got maybe 150 people and within about an hour. Ago, I've bought it. 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 Oh, this is a, such a big bestseller. In the end, I looked at the sales. It only sold 150 copies. Every single person who bought it tweeted about it. I thought that maybe 150 people tweeting about it meant that a million people had bought it, but it wasn't the case. So you're a very successful writer. I know that you wanted to be as big as Shakespeare, but you know, your time might still be yet to come. You're still, you're almost there. One of my personal bugs and cliches as a travel writer is when people talk about hidden gems. So I'm going to ask you about hidden gems because it, it makes me want to punch myself in the head as soon as I read that in anyone's article. Do you have any hidden gems around the world that you'd recommend so I can punch myself in the head? No. No. <laughs> uh, but you mean a hidden gem? You mean a really nice place that we don't know about? So what, you mean the, the way that America was a hidden gem until Columbus got there? Oh, absolutely, yeah, except for the poor Native Americans. <sighs> the notion of the hidden gem is within my business, in the restaurant business, has disappeared a bit just because of social media. You just you, critics aren't the people travel writers. They're not necessarily the people who find it. In theory, if there were a hidden gem, uh, you wouldn't tell people about it. There used to be, you know. I've just lost a hidden gem. We used to go to a place called the Pamphlet Estate in South Devon, uh, which is a lovely old estate. It was very high with, with cottages on to rent, which were basically inherited, and everyone's been there for fifty years. And we snuck into one and got one. And the main thing was it was this Mothercombe Beach, which was only open to the public on weekends and Wednesdays, but Monday, Tuesday and Thursday, Friday, it was not open to the public. And you could go there and have this huge, huge beach just to you. And then they changed the laws about beach access for the right, the right to roam legislation came in. And so now all day, every day, it's rammed full of people. So that's made me really sad. And the, the, the problem is we, we, the, the hidden gems have almost gone. We've got 7 billion people on the planet. and uh, More people are travelling than ever as well. It's becoming bigger and bigger. And part of that is the whole Instagram generation that can, you know, photograph a Riyadh swimming pool in Morocco or a tiny cafe. Mm. And then, you know, well, the people, people But people on. go there just in order to take the photo. So the, the, when I was in, when we made our show in Singapore on the roof of the Marina Bay Sands, the most famous, most photographed swimming pool in the world. And it's a very long swimming pool on a sort of spaceship on top of a massive building with views over the whole of Singapore. And it's just full of people selfieing. And it's not even deep enough to swim because they've made this 150 meter pool shallow enough that you can always stand and take a selfie. And you get up there and you try and swim and you're getting in the way of their self. They've gone there too selfie. So depressing. Um, and when you say about hidden gems, the furthest place I went was the island of Tetiaroa, which is the island off Tahiti that uh, Marlon Brando bought after filming there uh, with Mutiny on the Bounty in 1962. And they built a hotel called the Brando, and it's the furthest place in the world from anywhere. And yes, beautiful. Yes, wonderful coral reefs, and I swam with whales and this kind of thing. But in a posh hotel, it was pretty much the same as all other posh hotels. And it was the same old menu and the same old room service menu and the same old TV shows and the same old obsequious service. And I'm starting to feel really sorry for you now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should. It was, it was very, very similar to, to a similar hotel in uh, Thetford. I don't know where Thetford is. Or do I? Um, I think Essex somewhere. So have there been any times when you've travelled where you've felt in any peril at all? Anything frightening happened to you? I'm not the world's greatest flyer. When I went away with the kids, I had to book lots of tiny little Cessna flights to get places. Uh, and there was one when we were flying back towards Nairobi. I might get my geography wrong. I think I'm right. Back towards Nairobi from Samburu in the north. And you have to go over not Mount Kenya, but a very high range of mountains, the second highest in Kenya. And the tiny plane we were in couldn't fly. They were too close for it to fly up and over them. So in order to get over them, it had to fly in a spiral to get up. And there was, there was me and Monica and the pilot who was just like some gamekeeper, some ranger 
oh yeah, I'll fly it, you know, pop, pop, pop. and this thing was made in 1962. It was like being in a, it was just like being an old London cab. Duh, 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 duh. And it was, I mean, it doesn't, maybe it's not sounding that scary, but I was, we were packed in there and it's noisy and you had to spiral and spiral and spiral, blowing closer and closer to the mountain. Yeah, that um, sounds bloody awful. Uh, and the most serene you've ever felt in a destination. Does it have to be far away? No. My wife says the only time she's ever seen me relaxed, and that's in 12 years, was having breakfast the morning after our wedding in our room at Clifton, where we went for our wedding night, which was before it was bought by the people who own it now, and it was pretty, sp- pretty skanky. It was once a stately home, which was the place famously, uh, there was the scandal of the perfume affair where Christine Keeler was cavorting with Mandy Rice Davis and various cabinet ministers and Russian diplomats and stuff by the pool. It's now a hotel, very posh hotel, lovely. It was a bit run down when we were there, but it's now been bought by some friends of mine, the Livingstons. Uh, Ian and Natalie and it's now very very nice indeed obviously, obviously. anyone who goes there can book through me and, and I'll get a little bit of a I'm, I'm there count me in cool but it was a nice big four poster bed and in the morning we were watching some rubbish you Grant rom-com and having breakfast and a glass of champagne this remains the only time she's ever seen me relax partly because because the stress of the marriage was over but generally speaking serenity is not my mode of operation I, I have mentioned already but I was swimming with a whale swimming with a humpback whale and it's and it's calf and also a randy male whale that was hoping to get its fin over, as it were, but the mum was protecting it from the... But we were, we were in the boat, we were quite close to it with Monica filming, and you have to keep 50 metres away from them, you can't go any nearer than that to a whale, but if they don't go away, the rules of the international were blah, 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 oh, you can go in. And he said, you can go in. Now, I would think now I'd be too scared, because animals are quite scary, but when they said you could, in we went. No breathing apparatus or anything, just a mask and flippers. Um, and went in and then under the water totally silent and there was this whale um, and it sort of swam round us once and it rolled over and looked at us with an eye the size of my car you know oh sorry that's not emotion that's that cough I was talking about <laughs> that whale I um, so much and this whale went round us once rolled over looked at us through its eye this huge huge eye the size of my car the size of a house frankly but this thing which could, has been unchanged for a million years very extraordinary in this huge blue and then it turned away and gave one flick of its tail that just sort of disappeared you know as if it had become invisible and so that was pretty extraordinary my last question is always about music because i think the two go hand in hand travel and music and Mm. of course food and travel go hand in hand so if you had to choose one song that reminded you of a time or place of travel what would that be Tricky because I mean, I'm not much of a traveller, not very into music. But you've been uh, all around the but world. But it's true, I have been all around the world. Even though you keep protesting you're not much of a traveller, you've travelled more than many, many, many people. I, I, I think I've been to more than 100 countries. So I think I've been to more, which is very getting on for more than half the countries in the world. And I certainly have to change my passport every three years because it always fills up the thick one. So maybe you need to rethink that. But my heart, much of a traveller. But, no, but my heart and mind are always, always so strongly at home. And missing it that I, that I never really, you know, it's not like Michael Palin, you know, just go naked. No, in terms of music and travel, it would probably be, whether it's linked to a particular place, the Simon and Garfunkel song, I think it's just called America. We've all gone to look for America. That one. Or is that, there's the other one, it's the one about the, pass me a cigarette, I think there's one in yeah, my raincoat. We smoked the last one an hour on ago. On a greyhound bus, so yeah, that's yeah. it, America, yeah. Yeah, um... So that one is very much about travelling and about coming home. And with those ones, I think about buses. It makes me think about buses, which back when I was poor, which was a while ago, but which for anyone who isn't poor anymore, like when I was a student, when you really make contact with a, with a, with a culture and a place is when you can't afford to stay somewhere so posh that you're curtained off from it, which is what 
people like me are these days. And I used to go to Turkey a lot in the days because you could live for a quid a day and it wasn't that far away. And this wonderful coach service, which would be about three pounds for the night, it would just go through the night, everyone's smoking away on the on, on the bus and it, you know they come around with a lemon balm hand wash to wash your hands with. I remember when I, I was there for about three months reading David Copperfield on the bus with my girlfriend sort of asleep. And the cunning thing was to get the overnight bus because then you didn't have to pay for a night somewhere and waste that pound uh, and then get somewhere. And, and you eventually get, you know, you, you get tired of aubergines. And when I, mean, I used to listen on my Sony Walkman, quite often listen to that. And that, so that thing about being on the bus and looking at the other people and smoking the last cigarette is uh, it's probably that one. Thank you, Giles, for the most enjoyable conversation and to you for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. Coming up, we have Paralympic swimmer Liz Johnson and also two brilliant Irish authors, Ema McLeisett and Sarah Breen, who've been topping the charts with their books about a character called Ashling. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.